Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. This episode of From Page to Practice is a Charter College of Teaching Impact Journal special where I am joined by college members, fellows and chartered teachers to discuss the contents of the latest issue. If you enjoy the discussion and want to get a hold of your own copy of Impact, visit chartered.college and join as a member. Hi and welcome back again, part three of four of the four-part Impact Journal mini-series. This episode is on leadership and learning, and we kick off with two reader reflections on coaching for middle leader development. Hey guys, um, so I'm just here to talk to you for a review for Page to Practice um, on the Impact magazine. Um, just a bit of background about me. Um, my name is Mr Crony, or Greg Crony. Um, sorry, teacher mode there. Um, I am a history teacher, um, and I have, across my time, I've been a head of department um, head of year, a deputy head of year, um, and originally um, led Duke of Edinburgh as kind of my first element of leadership. Um, so yeah, the, I kind of, I really like this this kind of month's article, or, or this month's kind of uh, edition of Impact, because it was all about leadership and teacher expertise and learning and leading. Um, so yeah, I hope you I hope you give the magazine a go. Um, for only £3.50, it's so worth it, and I don't mean to give it a plug with that, but yeah, I just don't think there's much better CPD out there than kind of getting this magazine and not reading it front to back, but just bits of it and like take out an article that you really really like so yeah i hope you enjoy just wanted to take you through my thoughts um from an article um it's actually on middle leadership and it's called we're all in this together using a peer coaching model to support middle leaders development um usually i kind of will will make my way through a magazine like this and kind of pick out the articles that most appeal to me um and hopefully try to influence some of them. And whilst usually I would kind of expect to get teaching ideas from something like this, and this article doesn't actually really do that, um, but it but it is really useful for anyone who is like considering a middle leadership position, um, or anyone who's who's recently got one, perhaps for September, um, or someone like myself who's kind of had a few of them now. Um, <clears throat> this is my third middle leadership post. Um, I'm really looking forward to it and I just feel this article really resonates with me. So the under the underpinning factor really is this element of trust between you and your peers, especially those in kind of similar-ish positions to you. Um, and the, uh, and the, the article talks about um, a small a small mat um, of I think only two schools um, and they've dedicated some time um, to their staff um, or for their staff to actually meet one another. Um, from the sounds of things, they've met with an external uh, kind of group leader, um, which might not always be possible for everyone in school, but I really like the idea of meeting someone um, who's at your level, um, whether that's kind of someone within the same remit. So, for example, I'm in pastoral leadership. Um, I have, however, a ladder department, um, and I kind of think that, when I first took on my first leadership post, it would have been really useful for me to kind of meet someone at my level who'd perhaps been doing it a little bit longer than me. Um, And I think that's kind of the idea of the article. Um, A few things that kind of resonate or stand out the most um, is that the idea of getting people to meet one another would build reflective practitioners and help them to build trust and engagement in peer development and and like the biggest the biggest barrier to happen to to that is perhaps time and and one of the questions that our school actually raises is how much time can be invested in getting middle leaders to a place where they can be honest with each other with their line managers and with themselves um, and I think perhaps they come in three parts um, we've got to be honest with one another and throughout my kind of career so far I've probably learned the most from people who are um, my kind of peers and um, more than a line manager a line manager's definitely supported me um, and I've gone to when I've not got something right or particularly I need something to change Um, they kind of help me force through my ideas but I think it's my peers that tell me whether my ideas are right, wrong, doable, not doable, realistic Um, 
and kind of I've been really fortunate to work with people who who have kind of done similar to this article but the difference is that school here the uh, the Veritas uh, Multi Academy Trust um, has kind of given time aside to for people to meet one another and um, so they did it in like a series of workshops is what they talk about um, but the thing that really comes through in this article is this profound sense of trust um, you have to trust one another and I think that's the thing that could really change education after this kind of whole lockdown process sorry I had to reference it at some point um was that if we actually gave a little bit more time to meet one another um, and kind of share ideas we'd, we'd probably get a better end product um and then kind of people who are really solid in their role um, will feel trusted by their organisation because if a school came to an experienced middle leader and said look I want you to mentor this person um other than kind of the time implication, I think most people would see that as a as a positive thing that you're trusted in to do such a good job in your post that you could mentor someone else. Um, the the bit in particular that I really want to kind of um, look look at and like the end conclusion is really good that they discuss about their three principles, um, which is trust, time, and growth. Um, <clears throat> but other than that, the kind of the bit that really that I really like the most. Uh, is where they describe their goal and their goal was to create a culture where middle leaders might not feel empowered um, or sorry, it was to move from a culture where middle leaders might not feel empowered to question the systems in place where they have the courage and support to challenge existing systems based on evidence-informed practice and I think for me, I've worked with a handful of NQTs and trainees across time and they actually have provided some of my best ideas um, so the point I kind of want to leave you with is other than the article being thought-provoking and things like that, um, is new people have great ideas and we need to value them, um, particularly in a profession where I think numbers are dwindling and they will continue to dwindle after how we've probably been portrayed by the media in the last few weeks. Um, However, I've got my best ideas from people who are fresh and I've been able to test my own ideas with the experience of the people who are more experienced than I. Um, so yeah, I would strongly advise anyone this year, um, take some time. I hope you get a school like Veritas who allows you a period a week or at least some time to meet one another. Um, but if you don't, suggest a time. Um, me and my most recent line manager, um, who's my head of year at the moment, um, we meet. We meet once a fortnight, um, and sometimes it's once a week, but officially we meet once a fortnight. Um, and we literally just sit down, and sometimes we've got a lot to discuss, other times we haven't, um, but that kind of shared knowledge is the best thing that I could say to anyone. Um, this is a tough job, and you need to know when to follow before you can lead. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Charter College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. Hello, my name is Lucy Coy, co-host of At Her Teach Chat, experienced and serving school leader and a very small and insignificant contributor to Alison Peacock's book entitled Assessment for Learning Without Limits. From Page to Practice has kindly asked me to review an article in the summer 2020 edition of the Impact magazine, produced by the Chartered College of Teaching. The article is aptly entitled, We're All in This Together, and it talks about a model of peer teaching which was trialled by the Veritas Multi-Academy Trust, and it was written by Graham Chisnell, the CEO, and Kerry Jordan-Douse, the Principal Lecturer at Christchurch University, UK. In summary, Graham and Kerry have written about their experience of introducing a peer coaching model in order to support and challenge their middle leaders. It's an excellent article, explaining in detail about how and why they introduced the coaching model into their school's vision. I think it will really help other schools who are thinking about introducing a similar model. So I thought I would also try to help by giving you my three key things to consider if you were to introduce the same approach at your school. Firstly, think about your vision and values. What kind of ethos and environment do you want to have in your school? And do you feel that this approach is right for you and your team? 
something that Graham and Kerry quite rightly listed first in the article. The key to success with a coaching model is to really spend time talking about the purpose of coaching and the reasons why it's so important before you start. These conversations will need to be held with everyone, staff and governors, to ensure that they all understand the benefits of coaching and how powerful this can be on staff development and the consequent positive impact on the children's learning. For example, Graham and Kerry talk about how they introduced the concept of coaching and how peer coaching helped to develop their middle leaders and how they supported each other during a series of workshops held over a long period of time. This is so important. Invest time introducing your ideas to everyone and then you are more likely to be successful in launching your concept. Creating a vision for coaching is going to take time and you will need a whole school approach in order to get started. Once you've embedded the importance for and reasoning behind coaching, the next thing to consider is who will be doing the coaching itself and what that will look like in your school. Graham and Kerry talk about the importance of having qualified coaches, and I would certainly agree with this. In fact, Head Teacher Chat worked very closely with our sister company called Buzz for Learning Coaching Consultancy. My feeling is that you will get a better result if you are able to hire a qualified coach, independent to your school, to come into your setting and to coach your staff. This is because trust is so important in order to make your coaching project work. Something that Alison Peacock talks about and that I have learned over the years is how important and how powerful trust is in school development. With the right ethos, trust empowers staff to learn from each other. If you engage an external coach who takes time to talk to your middle leaders and they feel that they can talk openly, the results will be much richer. Graham and Kerry mentioned the fact that their goal was to move from a culture where middle leaders were not empowered to question the school's systems to one where the middle leaders have the courage and support to challenge them. Wow, that's such a brave thing to do as a senior leader. I know it's a really brave thing to do, to step back and ask staff what they feel is working and what's not working. But believe me, it's totally worth it and something that I talk about briefly in the assessment for learning without limits. As a senior leader, it's important, however, that you really know your staff well before you undertake a project. Your team will need to have a growth mindset in order to fully participate and enjoy the process. This is something that can be modelled by yourself to help create the right ethos for growth. Modelling trust as a leader is one way that you can embed this point. Tell staff that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to explore and try new things. Model sharing ideas at staff meetings. Encourage reflective practice and people will thank you for it and be more open and honest with you in return. You will need to plan for a consistent approach across the school so that everyone knows that the process is fair and transparent, again, reaffirming their trust in you as a leader. You will also need to build in time to openly discuss the results together as a team. The more time you allocate to this, the richer the result. Graham and Kerry quite rightly wrote that it was important to share the commitment across the organisation as it helped to embed the practice and to normalise the use of coaching as a solution to complex situations. Thirdly, build your future. Coaching is something that evolves over time. The longer you have this ethos in place, the richer it will become. However, all of this takes commitment. Staff need to show commitment, SLT need to show commitment, and they also need to model continuing reflective practice. In conclusion, the title of the article couldn't be more apt at this present time. We're all in this together and leaders will be leading like they've never done so before. The current situation with COVID-19 has changed the way we lead schools now more than ever. 
Leaders are looking for support at this time and coaching would be a really powerful way to see positive results in what is an extremely challenging and difficult time for schools. If you get it right and you build your model over time with trust at the heart of what you do, then I am sure that you will see great results. But the important thing is the training in the first place. Invest in introducing your concept properly right at the beginning to ensure that everybody believes in the idea and understands the power of coaching. That way, you'll be on the right path to success. I wish you all the best with your endeavours. And don't forget, Head Teacher Chat are here to support school leaders. So if you've got any questions, please ask and we will do our best to help. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Next, Catherine Lee is going to speak about her article, Courageous Leaders, followed by a reader reflection from Jared. Hello, my name is Catherine Lee. I'm Deputy Dean for Education at Anglia Ruskin University in the east of England. Before working in higher education, I spent many years as a teacher and most of those years were spent under Section 28 of the Local Government Act. Section 28 said that local authorities and schools must not promote homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. That left um, many of us who were LGBT and were teachers really scared that um, if our personal lives were came into conflict with our professional lives, then we may lose our jobs. Um, thankfully, Section 28 was repealed in 2003 and is long gone. Um, but the recent protests um, by parents and faith groups about LGBT-inclusive relationship, sex and health education has reminded me that things still, whereas they're much better, are still not perfect for LGBT people in school. And that's why I'm really proud to be on the strategic leadership team of Courageous Leaders. Courageous Leaders is a DfE-funded programme free for LGBT teachers and is designed to um, support teachers to identify and apply for and hopefully achieve promotions to um, school leadership positions. Courageous Leaders was founded in 2016 by Jane Robinson, a head teacher in the east of England. And now, four years in, it attracts um, teachers from all across the UK. My article in Impact is based on one of the sessions I lead on the Courageous Leaders programme, which explores um, what it means to be LGBT and an authentic leader. I argue that there are five distinct characteristics that LGBT teachers often acquire. But it's important to stress that I don't think that LGBT teachers are hardwired any differently to their heterosexual and cisgendered counterparts. It's just that they often have different experiences of the school workplace. And it's those experiences that give them a distinct set of skills. So the five characteristics that I've identified are emotional intelligence, sensitivity to the inclusion of others, connecting with others and building teams, managing uncertainty and stressful situations, and courage and risk-taking. So I believe that some LGBT teachers develop good emotional intelligence because they're used to proceeding cautiously in the school workplace, um, making calculated risks all the time about whether to come out, um, how, uh, how safe it is to be out and how much to say about themselves and their personal lives in the different situations they find themselves in. People with good emotional intelligence um, are great at figuring people out really quickly and that's a really important leadership skill. Um, It's something we apply when we interview staff for jobs, when we meet with different stakeholders um, and I believe that some of the experiences that LGBT teachers have really gives them emotional intelligence in abundance. The second characteristic I identify is sensitivity to the inclusion of others. 
LGBT teachers um, often feel on the margins, often feel different to other people. And, you know, having gone through this in the school setting, either as a pupil or as a member of staff, often makes them very sensitive to who else might be feeling um, excluded or, or, or not quite the same as everybody else. And having this empathy, I think, is really important for um, excellent, inclusive team building. In connecting with others, I argue that um, schools are quite heteronormative places. They're, they're very much driven by gender and by families. And um, school staff rooms can be places where LGBT teachers really feel that they have to proceed cautiously. Um, and often LGBT teachers are really, really good or they learn to be really good at finding common ground with other people who they might not necessarily have got too much in common. And I think that's a really important skill in, in leadership. And it's that, um, that transactional um, relationship building that takes place. In research I did recently with head teachers, um, somebody said to me, my staff trust me far more since I came out. And that really did resonate with me. I think any leader who is able to um, share something that sometimes can feel quite um, intimate um, information about themselves um, often finds that they they get a greater sense of loyalty and, and more sharing um, between staff, which is great for connect connecting with others and building good teams. In the section on managing uncertainty, um, I argue that LGBT teachers um, spend a lot of time in the school workplace really dealing with a great deal of uncertainty um, and managing sometimes quite stressful situations. Um, the LGBT teachers that we work with on Courageous Leaders often say they wonder who knows what about them and their private life. They're often um, always feeling on guard and on edge, wondering whether somebody's going to ask about um, whether, you know, their personal circumstances, whether a young person in the classroom is going to ask them if they're married or what they did at the weekend. And um, over time, they, um, they develop a poker face. And by that, I mean that there is all this uncertainty and stress um, and concern and horizon scanning going on um, alongside what is a really um, challenging role for, for all teachers in schools. And LGBT teachers get very, very good at managing that and giving nothing away. Well, that's a really important skill to learn as a leader. The final distinct characteristic that I identify in the impact article is courage and risk-taking. And um, it's no coincidence that the programme that we run for LGBT teachers is called Courageous Leaders. Schools don't always feel like safe spaces for LGBT teachers. And teachers must take risks every day about who they come out to, what they share about their personal lives. And coming out is in and of itself quite a, a risky and certainly a very courageous thing to do. So I just want to conclude by saying that Courageous Leaders is a really fabulous initiative and if you do want to find out more about our programme, we've got a website. It's courageousleaders.org.uk. We're on Twitter at LGBT Educators. And you can read our book. We've recently had um, a book published called Courage in the Classroom, LGBT Teachers Tell Their Stories. And that gives lots of information about the programme and features some of the individuals who have completed the programme and also those that are um, mentors 
on courageous leaders as well. So Courage in the Classroom is available on um, the John Cat website and also on amazon.co.uk. Um, my name again is Catherine Lee and I just want to say thank you for um, all the positive feedback I've had about my article in Impact. I hope that you have um, enjoyed reading it and I hope that this podcast has given you a little bit more um, information about the Courageous Leaders Programme. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready to go staff training sessions. Hi, my name is Jared Corley and I'm a primary school teacher in an international school. Um, I read the article Courageous Leaders, Supporting and Celebrating LGBT School Leaders by Dr. Caroline Lee. And when I read it, it was really, really uplifting and inspiring to read, especially as I identify as a gay man. And some of the struggles she mentions, I can absolutely relate to. I can imagine all teachers who identify as LGBT have their own stories of discrimination as well as successes. And luckily, I work in a school where I feel accepted and most schools are a very heteronormative world and sometimes that can present challenges if you're a teacher who identifies as LGBT. In Caroline Lee's article she talks about the work of courageous leaders and it's described as the UK's only LGBT school leadership program and provides the skills LGBT teachers need to thrive and navigate the complexities of their hetero and cis normative workplaces to become excellent leaders. And she suggests that because most schools are a place where straight people are the normal or the preferred sexuality, LGBT teachers do not feel adequately protected in their workplace. Now, I believe this panic and fear that continues is entrenched by policy created by the UK government from the 1980s. Um, her article reminds us about uh, Section 28, and that was a piece of legislation that prohibited teachers promoting the acceptability of homosexuality. Thankfully, this was repealed in 2003, yet I fear its consequences still linger in all our memories and has negatively impacted uh, schools and, and continues to be felt today. In her article, she also mentions that schools are deep-rooted in the predetermined categorizations of male and female using examples of toys in reception classes right through to the proms when leaving secondary school. Now, I know from my experience when I had my year 11 prom and even in my sixth form prom, there was an unwritten rule that you had to have a prom date of the opposite sex. I never would have dreamt or had the confidence to show my true self. Hopefully these behaviors and attitudes um, are changing. But for people who identify as LGBT+, the feeling of shame is very, very common. And it's a mixture of guilt and rejection for, for not being straight in a heteronormative world. And this feeling of shame did force me to hide my sexuality uh, for a long time. In school, university, when training as a teacher, um, and even in my NQT year. This feeling of shame that most LGBT plus people can identify with made me hypervigilant when growing up. I was extremely cautious and self-conscious about how I behaved, what my body language was like, constantly questioning myself, oh, did I, did I give the game away? Of course, this is, this is not my life right now. Um, I've accepted myself and my sexuality, and I think I'm, you know, fabulous. However, when Caroline Lee writes about LGBT teachers needing to be vigilant in order to survive the heteronormative school community, I can absolutely relate entirely. I find myself using these negative experiences or coping mechanisms and, and trying to turn them into a positive as a skill set to influence my leadership skills and thrive. Uh, she says that some LGBT teachers may not want to draw attention to themselves or go for leadership promotions, as this puts us in the spotlight, making us more visible where our colleagues, students and parents would, would take more of an interest in our personal lives, potentially exposing our sexuality. 
And for some, that is a risk LGBT teachers are just not willing to take. When I first read about Courageous Leaders, I was over the moon. It filled me with absolute joy, knowing that there is a leadership program aimed at teachers like me. It blew my mind that it actually exists. A program designed that encourages me to be my authentic self, gain courage, and most importantly, offers a safe place that encourages me to eliminate this feeling of shame. So when you take part in Courageous Leaders, they give you a mentor who will actively encourage you to challenge heteronormative school practices and recognize your potential to be a leader. I mean, brilliant. The article points out that LGBT teachers may have five key leadership attributes. And these are one, emotional intelligence, two, sensitivity to the inclusion of others, three, connecting with others and building teams, four, managing uncertainty and stressful situations, and five, courage and risk-taking. And out of these five, three attributes really resonated uh, with me and are my key takeaways from reading Caroline's article. The first one is emotional intelligence. Because most LGBT teachers have had to tread carefully when meeting new people, having to constantly come out of the closet, every time there's a new acquaintance, meeting a new colleague, you know, we have a superpower of reading the room, making good judgments of character, and we are able to apply this skill to make careful decisions that are hugely beneficial to being a leader. The second one is sensitivity of inclusion. As members of the LGBTQ, as members of the LGBT community, we know what it feels like to be different and not to be accepted. This experience is most likely to make us sensitive to inclusive practice. As LGBT teachers, we are more in tune or have a heightened awareness of those students who are on the margins in our own school community. We have a strong sense of justice, empathy, and understanding for inclusive practice. And again, this is something that is integral to being, to being a successful teacher and a school leader. The third and final one is managing uncertainty. I think we're all experts now in managing uncertainty in the current climate since the coronavirus uh, pandemic has turned our worlds upside down. With that said, LGBT teachers do have to navigate this feeling of, of an uncertainty a lot. When meeting parents and families or even colleagues, we do not know their opinions or beliefs about the LGBT community or, or how they're gonna react knowing that we identify as LGBT. Being an effective leader means managing uncertainty a lot. And finally, Knowing that a leadership program like Courageous Leaders exists for people like me, where we can positively use our experiences that have had to be used as a safety net, can now be used to enhance our leadership skills, is fantastic. Reading articles like Caroline's gives me hope that our profession is, is moving in the right direction. Schools that take part in the Courageous Leaders program recognize the importance of a diverse and inclusive workplace. Schools should be where everyone is empowered to do their best and be their best. And if we want that for our students, then we need it for our staff. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Next, Alison is returning to share her thoughts on the article supporting students with LGBTQ plus identities. Hi, I'm Alison Zions, and I'm a secondary school teacher of health and social care, and also a PhD student at Goldsmiths in Educational Studies, where I'm researching inclusive school policies for LGBTQ students in single-sex schools. I think it was fate that the first article I saw when I opened my new issue of Impact was the piece on A Whole School Approach to Supporting Students with LGBTQ Identities by Flora Kenta Casino levy and Joshua Haley-Milne. Not only was the layout of this article a perfect combination of the rainbow flag paired with shoes in a rainbow array of colors, but the article presented the context of why LGBTQ inclusion in schools is so vital today. According to Stonewall's 2017 school report, 45% of lesbian, gay, or bisexual students and 64% of transgender students report to being bullied in schools for being out. And that's just the students who are out. Young LGBTQ plus people are reported to have a significantly higher incidence rate of poor mental health and mental health disorders than their non-LGBTQ plus peers. And in order for schools to better suit the needs of young people, it is vital that these issues are handled appropriately. 
And this means that everybody in school needs to get on board with actively working to support LGBTQ plus young people and to fight any homophobic, biphobic, or transphobic bullying, which is also called HBTT bullying. Schools must be safe spaces for all young people. The research completed by Levy and Haley Milne used one school as a case study and involved the school leadership group in implementing policy changes to better support LGBTQ plus young people against any HBT bullying, but also by improving the curriculum to ensure more visibility for LGBTQ plus role models. This approach, which is suggested by organizations such as Educate and Celebrate and Stonewall, would bring about a wider cultural change to the school. As highlighted in this article, a key feature to this inclusion is buy-in from the wider community. It may be that some staff are not as supportive of the new curriculum changes. Some may just want to teach their subject to a high standard and don't feel the value in ensuring that role models are presented in their subject. Some staff may be fearful of getting something wrong, of using the wrong phrase, or of misunderstanding someone. Levy and Haley Milne emphatically write that the most powerful tool to combat resistance is the commitment of the school's leadership. While all individuals in a school have a role to play when it comes to making this change happen, you need the leadership on board to really push that forward. On a personal note, I loved reading this article and seeing what can be done in schools to better support LGBTQ young people. One of the suggestions in the article is running a Pride Day, and I can give my own personal two thumbs up to this. I've run a Pride Day in my school since 2016, and it's always the highlight of the year. We started small, a break time cupcake sale and a table decorated with rainbow flags. But the following year, we held a lunchtime celebration, and the year after, we had a drop-down day devoted to making a difference for our local LGBTQ community. Our students sported their pride colors as face paint and as wristbands. And now it's not uncommon to see students bringing their own pride flags to school events, such as sports day and school discos, to show just how out and proud they are. There are hundreds of schools across the country who are doing so many amazing things when it comes to supporting LGBTQ plus young people to be happy and successful. But we know that there are many schools where young people may not yet feel safe. If you feel empowered, please, please speak to a member of staff in your school about small ways you can make a massive difference to these young people. Get your school leadership involved and really work to make a difference. It's not only rewarding, but it will change the lives of your young people. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Charter College Impact Journal special. Join the Charter College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust amongst the education community and share your voice to shape your profession. We are now going to hear from Lizanna with her thoughts on Andy Buck's article. She'll return with a few more reflections in the final episode. School Leadership in Perspective by Andy Buck, author and founder of Leadership Matters. Buck provides an insightful piece exploring the importance of school leadership as a nuanced approach where he argues that leaders need to be able to draw on both transformational leadership and instructional leadership models and approaches to tailor their practice to suit the need of both the context of the school and the team. This perspective correlates with views from authors like, for example, Tony Bush and Hermino Barra, who both highlight the importance of flexibility in leadership in their work too. Buck goes further in pointing out that we are at risk of separating these perspectives and he argues that the nuanced layering of knowledge, both subject-specific and leadership over time, develops and strengthens the leader's foundations and skill set to engage with more complex and and challenging leadership issues at at times. The article explores late with et al.'s work as well as studies undertaken by Robinson and Rowe, and Buck develops a helpful synthesised model to outline how leaders develop both their knowledge base um, within subject and leadership to progress from classroom leader to middle leader, and then of course later on senior leadership and beyond. The model demonstrates how over time leaders scaffold their their wide-ranging skills and knowledge to be effective and impact-based. Buck points out that it is this combined nuanced scaffolded approach which has the most effective impact 
and it is important not to separate the key elements as some of the nuances will get lost. When it can help to make the greatest impact, this piece provides a deep insight into leadership development and is, is well worth engaging with at all levels. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Now we have a reader reflection on school leadership in lockdown. Hi there, my name's Dave Greenshields and I'm Vice Principal of Grace College in Gateshead. I've been a member of the Chartered College for a few years now and last year became a fellow and so I'm a big supporter of the work of the college uh, and especially of uh, the work that goes in to produce impact. And I found the recent issue of the Impact Journal particularly helpful given our current context in closure. Uh, I'm Vice Principal uh, of the school in which I work and that's presented a range of challenges uh, to us, to our student body and our staff body and the wider community. Uh, we are a school of 1,300 or so students uh, in central Gateshead in the northeast of England. Uh, we have a, a high rate of pupil premium uh, being claimed by our student body, over 50%. And so we've got a real concern and a heart to try and serve our community well through this strange and, and difficult time. And so this particular issue of impact spoke to me uh, on a number of levels, but the particular article that I have um, chosen to talk about is by Alma Harris uh, of uh, the School of Education in the University of Swansea. And the article is titled School Leadership in Lockdown. Now, I must confess, uh, I'm already uh, a big fan of uh, Alma Harris's work. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be doing a master's in education at the moment at Durham University, and the unit of study I've been working on recently uh, featured her work heavily as I was thinking about educational leadership and what makes for an effective school leader. And so I, I was immediately drawn to this article anyway, uh, due to that uh, backstory, if you like, or that context. Uh, and so I wasn't surprised to find the article uh, as helpful as I did. What I found particularly helpful about the article, uh, first up, was that it recognised that there are certain constants that we are dealing with and there are certain changes that we're having to process. So there are some things about educational leadership that have remained constant, not least that we, myself, other leaders in our schools have a responsibility to build each other's up, to build one another up in, in leadership and leadership capacity and um, to seek to distribute and uh, devolve responsibility to the person best placed to serve the student body or the community where they are. And also the point that was made about how we're all interconnected, how there's a real need in this time of closure to strive to do all we can to make meaningful connection with our colleagues, with one another, uh, and with the students, and with the parents, and with our wider community. Now, I don't know uh, about you, uh, wherever you are listening to this, but that's particularly challenging, I think, in our current context, because we're having to process and, and to deal with a lot of time in front of a monitor, a lot of time on Teams or Zoom or whatever it is that you're using. And so it can start to feel a wee bit laborious. But if that's the primary means we've got to build relationship and to, to make meaning together, if you like, in our current context, then it's really important that we, we give that, that the time and the, the merit that it, that it needs. The article goes on, having talked about those constants, to talk about some of the changes that we're having to place, not least uh, the transformation of the school to being... Uh, not only a place of education, but a real hub in the community. And if anything good is to come out of this time of lockdown, I hope not least it will be that recognition that schools do play a unique role in our society. Uh, and also this uh, idea about the value of the distributed leadership model that is being re-emphasised. Uh, if I can just quote briefly, uh, Harris says, each person counts, each person is a leader. And the collective work is now the most important catalyst for change and action. And they're powerful words, aren't they? And for me as a school leader, thinking about uh, the staff team and the student body, it's, it's really important that I recognise that in our organisation, everybody counts. Everybody has the chance to lead. If leadership is influence, then every member of staff has a role to play as we seek to uh, support our student body in their academic progress, but also in their personal development and their emotional well-being not least. So Harris then goes on and makes a series of recommendations for leadership in lockdown. She starts by saying, that actually, well, leaders, we need a vision, a vision of what we're going to do, what we're going to do for our school communities and how we're going to serve them. Uh, and 
that is so important so so important to what we're doing i think uh, she makes the point we've got to look at what's really important identify what's of marginal importance to achieving our vision and and push that to the side and seek to to focus our attention on what really matters and i'm sure we've all felt during this period of lockdown there have been days where 101 things come in our direction and it's so hard to prioritize and so at that point around leadership vision and that and and that vision giving clarity about priority I thought was really, really helpful. Uh, also the point regarding the localised context. We are all working in schools in very different places, in very different contexts, and the localised leader, the, the leader on the ground, the person who knows their community and, and has a heart for their community and knows how to serve them best has, has, has become increasingly important in these recent weeks, not least in how we also seek to lead and to build the community around us. We've got to recognise as well that for our staff team, while some may be feeling uh, a, a release in terms of workload as they work from home, for many, the workload has increased exponentially. So many of our staff are juggling a range of demands on their time, not least their work, but also love and care for their family. And so we have to be striving to set really clear boundaries for our staff so they know when they have, they've clocked off, so they know when in the space. And so we set a clear expectation about them, about what we hope they will uh, achieve in the time they are at home. But also we understand that the timeline for tasks is not the same as it would be in a normal context. And we seek to support them in that. And finally, uh, I thought the point made regarding equity and recognising equity for our student body needs to be sought in relation to, say, technological access to the curriculum. Um, but that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and, and we're wrestling with that right now in Central Gateshead. We're wrestling with that question. Uh, and if nothing else, the point uh, made by Harris uh, in that regard um, stirred me to, to think more deeply about how we do all we can to seek to deliver um, the best education we can to all of our young people whatever their level of online access or technological literacy. So that's my um, reflection on, on the article. It, it certainly has provided me with, with food for thought and with uh, much needed clarity, I think, um, of vision and, and thought process uh, in these really uncertain times as we wait for government guidance about what secondary school reopening will look like, um, as we hope to see our students again before the year is out. And I hope you found my reflection uh, helpful. Thanks and goodbye. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. For the final contribution to this episode, we hear about developing subject leadership and expertise in the primary curriculum. Hi, my name is Natalie Bethel and I'm a deputy head at a junior school in Derby. This is my first time of ever recording a podcast and I seem to have stumbled into it completely by accident uh, from a very random tweet that I sent out a couple of weeks ago. So Obviously, the focus of this podcast this week is all about the Impact magazine that has been recently posted out to us all. And when I received it, I opened it and it just smelled amazing. It just smells of fresh paper, fresh printing, just smelled great. And so I sent a tweet out that said, I know, you know, obviously it's really important professional development, but doesn't Impact magazine smell great? And Rebecca, who runs this podcast, saw it and said, well, I run a podcast all about... Um, professional development and things and would you like to contribute your thoughts on a different article so I thought why not let's go for it let's be 10% braver let's share my thoughts hopefully it will resonate with some people that somebody out there will say do you know what I thought that too or it might make you go back and have a look at the article again and read it with a different lens and think about how your experiences can link to it so yeah here I am I hope you enjoy my thoughts so the article that I've chosen to talk about is the Leading the Primary Curriculum, Developing Subject Leadership and Expertise, which was written by Robbie Burns. This is something that I feel really passionately about. I cannot express enough how much I enjoy developing leaders and getting them to be the best that they can be. As I know that if you've got strong leadership, then the children will have the best thing, uh, the best education that they possibly can have um, because you know, they're, they're being cared for by leaders who've got the right focus, who've got the right drive, who know 
where they want places to go and that they've got a passion for their community. So reading this article really resonated with me because it's what I've been working on for the past couple of years or so. So I'm hoping that um, in my section of the podcast today, I'm going to be linking what I've been working on currently and how... um, the research from this article that I've read links together so hopefully there'll be a lot of of real true life examples that I can share with you today. So for a bit of context um, I started my role as deputy head in January 2018. The junior school that I'm in is in the centre of Derby uh, with special measures when I joined and is quite classically an inner city school so high generate um high percentage of first generation EAL students, high um, percentage of people premium, slightly above average um, send. I'm sure you've got schools very similar to you in your own area. I'm sure you know the story. I'm sure you know how it goes. So yeah, that's the kind of context that I'm in at the minute. Fingers crossed, we were supposed to be having Ofsted in this summer too, and they were going to see the fantastic progress that we have made. However, obviously coronavirus and the current pandemic has put a stop to that. But hopefully in the next year or so, we'll be getting a a fresh judgment, which will no longer be special measures because our school has gone on an amazing um, journey and we're really proud of what we've uh, created. So obviously when I joined, the focus was really on English and maths and just improving the quality of teaching and learning. There'd been a long uh, cycle of under, um, of not valuing. So when I joined, obviously the focus was on English and maths and improving the quality of teaching and learning. There'd long been a, a cycle of not having high expectations and then that in turn that just had affected the outcomes for the children so we had an English lead we have a we had a maths lead and then I was the wider curriculum lead I was curriculum lead for everything so I had the art hat and the history hat and the science hat and all well all of the hats basically which obviously was not ideal or sustainable and it wasn't ever going to be a sustainable model it was more of a stopgap so that we could say well who is your uh, geography lead oh that would be me that would be Natalie the deputy head so just so that we got a name to put to things and then obviously as things improved with English and maths and the quality of teaching and learning we began to start to think about how we could distribute that leadership further which is obviously what the article's all about distributing the leadership because it's really important that everything the changes that we're making are sustainable and if that's just coming from the head and the deputy head at the top it's it's not going to stay sustainable and it's not going to keep improving. So we knew that distributed leadership was what we needed to do and it's what um, both of us really believe in. So we started to think about distributing the leadership and we were starting to consider that in about the June of 2019. So we spent a year on English and maths and now it was ready to look at the curriculum. That also tied in with the new Ofsted framework so everybody was starting to look at curriculum as well um, which worked out for the best because there was a lot of research coming out about curriculum and the best ways to tackle overhauling a curriculum making things uh, better so worked out for the best but it did also look a little bit like we'd done a knee-jerk reaction to Ofsted which wasn't what we were doing at all but it was there and we were ready to go with different things. Early on in the article Robbie mentions the point about actually primary teachers and in schools in general you don't always have that expertise of a subject lead it's very unlikely that you'll have somebody who's you know done a degree in design and technology or had previous work experience within that field it's very unlikely that that happens and if it does then you're hugely blessed to have that kind of expertise in your school so it's all it was all about for us at first trying to find out what people wanted to lead because again if you don't feel passionately about it it can be quite hard to to fake that passion and make it look like you're interested in that subject area and obviously if you don't feel that passion it's quite hard to sell that to some other people who also don't particularly feel passionately about your subject so we start off by considering and asking them if they had a preference um when so when we sent out our 
forms at the end of the year to say, you know, which year group would you like to teach? We also included one about subject leadership. Um, it actually worked out that there was very little overlap. There was only one or two people that we had to go and say, actually, we feel that you would be better suited to this subject area and which worked out really, really well. So we didn't have very many people who were annoyed or disappointed about the subject that they'd had to take on. And and actually everyone has really embraced the subject that they've got, which has been fantastic to see. So in the June 2019, all the subject leader roles were assigned and we were very clear that it was not curriculum coordinators, which were obviously the the buzzword a few years ago, is subject leadership. We wanted it to be about leadership and about having those people own their subject and know that it wasn't just about organising the cupboard once at the end of every year, it was about leading the subject. And again, that's something I feel really passionately about. So I'm the overarching curriculum lead and then I've got the subject leaders underneath who help to obviously lead their subjects. It's just unsustainable for me to manage the whole thing. I really liked Robbie's point in the article about Everyone who teaches a curriculum is responsible for its development and that was really important for me because being a deputy head, I'm only teaching in the classroom one and a half days a week. I don't really know what it's like to juggle all of those subjects still and have you know, the different expectations that we've got for each subject area. You know, we've clarified the teaching and learning expectations but now we're starting to think about the wider curriculum. We were in the really fortunate position that we were starting from the bottom. We could shape our curriculum however we wanted it. And we spent um, a couple of staff meetings looking at what is our curriculum? What do we want it to be? What would we like to have for the children in our care? And we came up with a, a group vision all around that, which was really, really helpful because all staff bought into that and they could see exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it which links into principle one and I'll talk about that a bit further in a minute we they know their community so so well and they know what our children need they know what kinds of secondaries they go to and things so it was really important that they had that buy-in for our curriculum vision I then met with all of the subject leaders individually to discuss their vision for their subject to create their big rocks so their five non-negotiables almost that they were going to be working on over the year and an action plan that supported the overarching curriculum aim. It was really important that the subject leaders understood that wider curriculum vision and how their subject fit into that overall uh, vision that we were going towards. So a lot of their mini visions for their subject contain keywords that were included in our wider curriculum vision, which has been something that has been really helpful for them because they could see how that all joined together. Obviously, this links with principle one within the article, all about a deep understanding of the school context and community. As I've already said, the teachers know the children really, really well. The teachers know the community. We've got a lot of long-standing members of staff at our school. And we one of the coaching questions that was asked was actually, you know, you're you're the history lead what will the year six child leaving our school, what will they be able to do in history because of your subject leadership? What would the ideal historian look like when they leave our school? What are we going to be sending them to secondary school with? What skills, what knowledge? And that really helped a lot of them to shape their thinking because they could see that child. They've they've seen plenty of children leave our school in year six. They could see what we would want to produce at the end. We would We want our children to go to secondary school and be proud of where they where they've come from and for secondary school to say ah yes we know which school you've come from you know you can tell by the way that you are the way that you act the things that you know so that was something that really helped them to really narrow well uh, narrow their vision down into what they wanted to create and what they wanted to do so all of that happened within the summer term of 2019 and then we then moved on to principle two which was the ongoing professional development which started in the September 2019 so this academic year just started um thankfully we are in a fantastic trust who offers a lot of great CPD so there was a lot already for subject leaders because they could see that appetite was being needed we were asking a lot of people to step up in subject leadership roles who might not have had that experience before so there was a lot of leadership cpd offered from our trust i offered um weekly coaching sessions and we started with 
three of the subjects at first and then moved on to um, more of them as the year rolled out because it's again not sustainable for me to try and change everything at once and it's not sustainable for the staff to try and change everything at once so we focused on science history and geography which are our key drivers across the curriculum so I met with them once a week and we had weekly coaching sessions mostly around creating knowledge organizers and progression documents this has helped improve their understanding of their subject massively so again in in primary education and in fact in secondary I'm sure you get very much into your own bubble so you know exactly what's happening in your subject you know exactly what's happening in your year group but when it comes to being a subject leader for the whole school you need to know what's happening in the other year groups as well and there was a big gap in our subject leaders knowledge for that which again is something that Robbie mentions in his article knowing your subject knowledge and having that expertise so that people can come to you is something that quite a lot of people lack. So we needed to spend that time with that principle too of ongoing professional development. So they spent, and in fact, they're only just started to finish them now, um, a good, well, it must have been about four months almost on creating knowledge organisers for every topic in every year. So they knew exactly what was being taught in their subject over the different year groups. And then because they knew exactly what was being taught in the different year groups, they could start to see the links. They could see which vocabulary would need to be covered in year three, which could then be built upon in year four and then added on in year five and year six. So they knew which subjects were going to be brand new. They knew which topics were going to be builders. So they knew actually, if I start to talk about natural disasters in year four, for example, when I start to talk about earthquakes again in year six, they've already got a bit of background knowledge for it. So I shouldn't need to cover this again. I can just build on it and provide more information and really deepen their understanding. And like I've said, that has made a massive difference to their subject knowledge because at the start of the year, they were going, I just don't know. I just don't know what's being taught in the different subject areas. But now they do and they've got such a good handle on what's happening and that's been part of a major part of their development. They've now created progression documents which include how vocabulary progresses over the years as well as obviously the different topics and the different progress it makes. Um, we're now replicating that for PE, computing and RE and that was sort of happening over the spring term. Again, the subject leaders have found it immensely helpful to have all of that information and to know what's being covered and it's been great to see them take it on with such passion and enthusiasm and now we're starting to work on art, music, DT and MFL. So it's it's been a long process but it's been well worth it and all of our subject leaders in that initial coaching conversation at the very start where we started talking about vision and big rocks, they all identified that both their own subject knowledge and the subject knowledge of the teaching staff wasn't up to scratch and that was one of the things that would need to be improved. So now we've actually got some really knowledgeable subject leaders who can now share their thoughts and share their knowledge with the other people across school so we've got those experts they know that they can go and talk to the history lead about history because the history lead knows it they know what's happening they know what will be covered they know which facts really need to be taught explicitly in order for them to be able to build upon it in future years and that it's been a mammoth piece of work but it's been well worth it this then moves on to principle three which is about commitment to the development of a strong subject leadership and management skill set Moving forward, um, our CPD, so our staff meetings, will be built around the subject leaders sharing their subject. So what have they been doing with all these knowledge organisers with, with these progression documents? What are they expecting to see in a good quality RE lesson? What are they expecting to see in a good quality music lesson? So a lot of it will be around developing the subject knowledge of the wider staff because those um, curriculum leaders have really got a good understanding. They know their subject now and they're really keen and passionate to sell their subject and make sure it's being covered so that our children have that broad and balanced curriculum. A lot of our leaders, so I've had three who said that they're interested in completing wider leadership courses. So I've got three who are enrolled on an MPQML now, which is fantastic because, again, they hadn't considered that. But now they're thinking about leadership and how they can really um, 
share their subject and how they can make a difference positively across the school. I really like the sentence again within the article about subject leaders seeing themselves as de- um, about senior leaders. Sorry, I really like the sentence in Robbie's article about senior leaders seeing themselves as developing leaders at all levels. That's exactly what I feel and exactly what I love about leadership. That is possibly my top favorite thing of being a leader is that I get to develop other people and see them grow. So seeing these people like grow and flourish as leaders and knowing the difference that they're going to be making to the children, I find really fulfilling. I know that, and especially having ha- having read this article now, I know that our curriculum development will be sustainable precisely because everyone is developing their leadership and everyone is developing as a person and they know that they feel trusted to lead their subject. So I'm now starting to get Again, when we first started this project, it was, well, what do you think? What do you think I should do about my subject? What do you think I should say to people we can do this? Whereas now it's the other way around and I've got people coming to me saying, I'd really like to do this. What are your thoughts on it? And again, it's just that little bit of a culture shift that they own that subject. So it's not me telling them what to do. They're coming to me and saying, this is what I would like. And I think we can roll it out in other subjects like this too. Um, so I, because I was seeing those kind of results, I knew I was on the right lines. But having read this article in the Impact magazine just really helped to reaffirm that I was on the right lines and I was making the right decisions. And it's really helped to shape my thinking for the next steps in the future, particularly around principle three and making sure that we really keep embedding that strong subject leadership. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. The final is on resilience and mental health. I'll say it again. If you've enjoyed this episode or found it useful at all, then please share with friends and colleagues and take two minutes to put a quick review on iTunes to help reach more people. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>